In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your many blessings to us. The blessing especially of gathering together for this time of reflection and this time to grow in our faith. We ask you in this upcoming talk that you inspire us through your Holy Spirit to know the truth behind the crucifixion, the beauty and the goodness and the unconditional love that was given through this event by our Savior and the resurrection that is emblazoned on this cloth that tells us of his powerful victory over death. We ask all of these things through Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. Mary, seat of wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And uh, right now we're going to move to a kind of related topic uh, to the one I spoke of this morning. Uh, now we're going to take a specific area of uh, the evidence for Jesus uh, from science. And at first glance, uh, sometimes we think that, well, Jesus, of course, was a historical event. We have all kinds of evidence for Jesus from the Roman historian Cornelius Tacitus, from the Jewish historian Flavius Josephus, from the Babylonian Talmud, all of which are contemporaneous with the time of Jesus. But this Shroud of Turin is a relic that is truly special indeed. As you can see from these pictures here, and we'll talk about it in a moment, um, the, the Shroud of Turin is a, uh, uh, the purported burial cloth of Jesus. Obviously, I believe that it is the burial cloth of Jesus, and I'm going to explain to you why throughout this talk. It's 14 feet long. It's about uh, uh, three and a half feet wide. It is made from flax or linen, um, and it is woven with a very complex twill um, that uh, was maybe manufactured even in India, seemingly. And uh, so we can see that it's uh, a, a very beautiful cloth um, at, uh, from ancient uh, Mesopotamia uh, in that area. We also see that um, there's an image emblazoned on that cloth. And what's interesting about that image is it's a perfect photographic negative image. So um, you can see from the face there on the, uh, on the cloth behind me, uh, you can see uh, just how um, uh, really precise that image is. It looks like a real human face. And all those blotches that look like they're almost, you know, kind of white stains coming out, those are blood stains. But if you look at the actual cloth, it's definitely red. And we'll talk about those blood stains uh, momentarily. And um, uh, also, um, that image is a three-dimensional image. So it's a layered image, uh, like a, uh, uh, you might get um, through an MRI, a, a magnetic uh, resonance uh, imaging. And so uh, you might wonder, well, how can this be done uh, by a medieval forger? Well, the, we'll talk about that in a moment. The answer is, it wasn't done by a medieval forger. Uh, this was done by an extraordinary amount of radiation, as we'll see, for one forty billionth of a second, you have somewhere in the neighborhood of between six to eight billion, with a B, billion watts of light energy is going to emanate from the body inside of that cloth. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. 
The cloth, though, is an amazing combination of the image of Jesus. Um, see, well, we'll see why it's Jesus, but it's the image of a man, a perfect three-dimensional image of a man on a non-photographically sensitive cloth. It has blood stains that we'll talk, describe in a moment on it in a myriad of different places, marking the wounds of crucifixion of a man who was crucified in exactly the unique ways of Jesus as reported in the Gospels. Furthermore, the blood stains <clears throat> actually adhered to the cloth before the image was emblazoned on the cloth. This court, we'll see, corresponds to the burial of Jesus. And if, at the end of the day, as we shall also see, this cloth actually manifests uh, evidence of the resurrection of Jesus, the glorious resurrection of Jesus, and even the spiritual resurrection of Jesus. It is the most unique historical artifact and the most unique image in history. There is nothing like this image. It is totally unique. And furthermore, it is the most scientifically tested historical artifact in history. I would say that it gives a preponderance of evidence that indicates it is the burial cloth of Jesus Christ, who was crucified and risen in glory from the dead. Okay, well, I've given you the general description. Now I better get to it and tell you why I think that this is true. Many of you, of course, have heard that in 1988, a carbon dating was done on the shroud, and the carbon dating turned out to be uh, somewhere uh, between uh, 1200s uh, to late 1300s. That's the dating that was given by that carbon dating. And at first glance, if you are anything like me, uh, because the, uh, the samples were taken to three of the most reputable laboratories uh, in the world, the one at uh, the University of Arizona, uh, the one at um, uh, Zurich, and the one at Oxford, uh, these are three undoubtedly uh, you know, uh, reputable um, you know, uh, laboratories. Uh, that couldn't have been falsified, that reading that was given. However, was the reading correct in the sense that the sample was the sample something that deserved to be tested, <coughs> or was the sample compromised? Did it come from a place on the shroud which would have been compromised in some way? As many of you know, the Shroud of Turin was caught in the fire of Chambéry, and in that fire, um, in uh, 1532, uh, the Shroud was in a chapel, sitting in a chapel in France, and these, uh, 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 you know, the, it was in a silver sort of a casket, and during the fire, drippings from the, uh, the fire uh, actually melted the casket and, and these drippings from the casket actually burned through the cloth in a particular corner of the shroud. Well, for some bizarre reason, um, uh, the, uh, the, the team that took the sample for the carbon dating in 1988 took it from that corner 
Now, there's three reasons why you would not want to take it from that corner. The first is that carbon dating measures carbon content in the clock. Well, what do fires do? They increase through the smoke all the carbon content. So I'm thinking to myself, why would you take it from there? Burning does something too. It too increases carbon content. And not only that, it compromises the clock. And number three, third thing of importance, is some sisters mended the clock in 1533 with a technique called invisible mending. Now what did they use to mend the cloth with? Well, they used 16th century thread because they were living in the 16th century. And they used cotton thread instead of linen thread. The rest of the shroud, the whole shroud is made of linen but there is cotton in the shroud, but it's only in the spots where the sisters mended it. And then they dyed those cotton uh, fibers, those cotton threads, yarns, so that they would look like the, the color of the linen that the shroud, um, you know, that the uh, image was on. So now let's just take a look. So that's where the, the sample was taken for the 1988 carbon dating. Well, um, when the dating test came in, if you were anything like me, you just threw up your arms and went, wow, I, I couldn't have imagined that this thing was a fake, but I guess it was. But it really wasn't. In 1998, the debunking process of the 1988 carbon dating began, and it began with Dr. Ray Rogers. And Dr. Ray Rogers was the head of thermal chemistry in um, Los Alamos Laboratories in New Mexico. Uh, this is a high prestige jo uh, 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 job, of course. Dr. Rogers uh, was actually the editor for Thermochemica, a peer-reviewed medical journal in thermal chemistry. Now, uh, when he discovered uh, about the, uh, <clears throat> the sample that was used to d in the 1988 dating, he discovered, number one, there was cotton fiber in there. Wow, there's a thought, cotton, but the shroud is linen. So this tells you already something is amiss. Could be that from the very spot the shroud, was, uh, the shroud sample was taken, uh, that was the invisible weaving of the sisters, which took place in the 16th century and it mingled with the f threads that were in the original linen. So the first thing we notice is that there's linen and cotton together. The second thing is there's dye in, in that cotton. There's dye in the, in, the, in the sample, and the dye we know came from the 11th century in Europe or later. So wait a minute now. Now we've got a really contaminated sample that looks like it came from the 16th century and it was woven in by the sisters into a controversial compromised spot which basically was burned and mended by the sisters. Well, here's what Dr. Rogers finally concluded. I hope you don't mind. Uh, but my assistant, Joan, she's going to read it uh, from her seat without benefit of the microphone, but I th it's there on the screen if you can't hear her. The combined evidence from chemical kinetics 
analytical chemistry, cotton content, and pyrolysis mass spectrometry proves that the material from the radiocarbon area of the shroud is significantly different from that of the main cloth. The radiocarbon sample was thus not part of the original cloth and is invalid for determining the age of the shroud. There you go. That was blow number one to the 1988 carbon dating. The sample taken was probably from the sisters mending in the 16th century. It was not taken from the original shroud. But we have more work to do. Okay, then the second thing that came about for the debunking of the 1988 carbon dating was Tr Dr. Tristan Casabianca and his team, uh, they had been appealing to the British Museum to get the raw data from the carbon dating tests, to get that raw data so that they could do a statistical analysis of it to find out whether or not that statistical analysis showed heterogeneity or not. Now, if a sample shows heterogeneity, that is to say, differentiation within the sample, that means that embedded in the sample are two different threads with two different dates. And that is precise. Oh, well, finally, after 31 requests on Freedom of Information Act from the British Museum, finally, in I think 2019, the British Museum released the data, <clears throat> the raw data to um, Casabianca and his team. They did the statistical analysis, and what did they discover? They discovered that the sample had immense heterogeneity. That is to say, there was a mixture of the original linen, which had one age, and then the threads that the sisters used to mend it which had a much more recent age. And these two things blended together, which invalidated the sample and certainly invalidated it being used uh, to test, uh, to uh, secure the conclusion that it came from a medieval forger. So that's, you know, part two, debunked again. But then, uh, because of these uh, uh, obvious uh, difficulties, um, Dr. Ray Rogers did a vanillin test. I'm going to sort of blow by that for a second. And uh, Dr. Giulio Fonti did three other tests. He did a uh, cellulose test. Uh, right, you can actually, you can, cellulose decreases over the course of time, right? In every linen, there's cellulose, and cellulose decays over the course of time. You can actually measure that, and you can get a pretty good assessment of the decay of uh, cellulose. Uh, in ancient fabrics, you know, they go 3000 BC all the way to the present moment. You can basically put together, you know, um, uh, you know, a cellulose um, index uh, for that cloth going uh, um, uh, backward through the ages. And you can test cellulose very, very accurately through two techniques. One is called um, Fourier transformed infrared spectroscopy and another technique is called Raman laser spectroscopy. Both of those tests were done. And this was also combined with a mechanical compressibility and tension test. So three tests were done after the carbon dating was done, but they were not using 
um, uh, uh, carbon dating. They were using um, cellulose decay and, and mechanical compressibility and tension. What did they come up with? When you combine, what Fonte came up in combination, history test showed that the shroud comes from 90 AD, plus or minus 200 years with a 95% confidence level. But when you mix that in with Ray Rogers' vanillin test, the basic, if you average all four tests together, it comes out to 50 AD, really close to 33 AD, which is the time of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. So that 33 AD, it comes from 50 AD, plus or minus 200 years, with a 96% confidence level. Now, that really disagrees <laughs> with the 1988 carbon dating. It's exceedingly unlikely that all four of these tests are off by a factor of 1,300 years. So the carbon dating in 1988, I have to tell you, sounds, I won't say it was a fraud. I won't say they intentionally took a sample that would give a fraudulent result. But I got to tell you, it really seems like it. All I can say is, whoever took that sample could not have been looking for any kind of objective evidence of when the real linen was, um, uh, was uh, originated. So do we have other uh, verifications of the dating? We do. I'm just going to quickly, uh, I'm not going to go through the pollen fossils with you just because of the shortness of time, but I'll, well, I can just briefly say this. There are pollen fossils that are embedded in the shroud. And the pollen fossils uh, can actually, uh, you can see where they, uh, where certain samples that look like those pollens are found, uh, you know, the, the degree of, uh, of uh, um, you know, where they're, what region they are, uh, you know, geographically, but you can also uh, find out the geographical, uh, the geological levels um, you know, that these kinds of pollens are found in. And there was a Swiss criminologist by the name of uh, Dr. Max Fry. And it was Fry who basically um, showed, you know, the, uh, uh, that the shroud has a high number of indigenous um, pollen fossils that come from where? Jerusalem and northern Judea. That's the highest number by far of pollen fossils on the shroud is from Jerusalem. Now, are you kidding me? How would a medieval forger even know what a pollen fossil was? Know which pollen fossils were indigenous to northern Judea and Jerusalem? And then very, very calculatingly, calculatingly places those pollen fossils onto the shroud when it originated in Leary, France in 1342. I don't think so. I think, uh, you know, again, we see evidence. But then there's a second, another kind of external evidence that uh, points to the same dating conclusion. There are two coins on the man's eyes in the shroud. And the coins were used, right, to keep the, the eyes closed because sometimes the eyes will open after death during time of rigor mortis, etc. The eyes can pop open. And so they put these two little coins. They were Roman leptons. Lepton is worth less than a penny. It's a very small coin. But it's just perfect for keeping the eyelids closed. 
And of course, this was frequently done as burial procedure, uh, so to keep the, the dignity of the man um, in state. And so these two coins are on there, and you can see those coins uh, very, very uh, clearly. Uh, you can see those two coins on the man's eyelids in the shroud. What kind of coins are they? As I said, they're Roman leptons. But if you examine those Roman leptons very closely, you'll see that there's four enigmas on there. The crozier has a, you know, kind of an indentation in it. The chi, and, you know, chi is a Greek letter. Uh, it is an unusual form of, of, uh, of, of the letter chi, et cetera, et cetera. So you've got these four enigmas on these coins. And the only, uh, the only coins that we have in every numismatic collection throughout the world that has these particular four enigmas together on Roman leptons comes from what minting? These are mintings that come from Pontius Pilate in 29 AD in a special minting in Jerusalem. That's really unusual. Are we sure that these coins are precisely the ones that come from this minting? Dr. Alan Vanga, who actually did, did the uh, uh, photograph overlay analysis of it, um, uh, gives us uh, a very concise conclusion that Joan will read. We have done this by means of the polarized image overlay technique that we developed, which enables the highly accurate comparison of two different images and the documentation of the various points of congruence. Using the forensic criteria for matching fingerprints, we feel that there is overwhelming evidence for the identification of the images and the matches with the coins. There you go. Funny how that medieval forger got Roman leptons from a special minting by Pontius Pilate in 29 AD to fool everybody. I don't think so. Number three, there is another wonderful relic called the face cloth of Oviedo. And this also provides us with some external dating criteria. Uh, so for example, uh, the face cloth of Oviedo, well, let's go back for a second. Uh, do you remember uh, in John's gospel when John and Peter go running to the tomb John gets there first because he's younger. He's looking in, and what does he see? He sees the shroud over here, right, the burial cloth. But what does he see? He sees the face cloth rolled up in a separate place by itself. Remember that little passage from John's Gospel? What is a face cloth? A face cloth was generally used uh, when a, um, a person, for example, in Jesus' case, was beaten severely. So obviously the face was, uh, you know, disfigured. It was macabre. And just because of, you know, uh, trying to keep the dignity of this person that was very, very beloved uh, by the people around there, it was normal for uh, the, the, um, uh, them to put a face cloth around the face and then it would go up over the uh, head and back down toward the nape of the neck. And this would be used to transport the body uh, from, let's say, the cross, in Jesus' case, over to the tomb. 
Uh, this would prevent the jaw from flopping right open as you, you know was walking. Also, there's pleural edema fluid that would be pouring out of the nose, right? And so you don't want again. It's a mark of you know it's an indignity uh, to to see this. The blood and, and the the massacring, the swelling and the wounds uh, were just you know terribly macabre. And so of course they used a, a face cloth. Now what happens when they bring the body to the tomb? They take the face cloth off the face and then they deposit it in a place by itself. Then they take the body and then they place it in the cloth. Normally, they would wash the body thoroughly before anointing the body. But remember in Jesus' case, it was the Passover and they had to get it all done and they had to get the tomb sealed before Passover officially started, right? No work uh, during the Passover time. So uh, for all intents and purposes, they lay the body in the burial cloth, put the burial cloth over the top of the head all the way down to the feet. But there we have it. Now you say, well, what's so significant about this face cloth of Oviedo? The face cloth of Oviedo then was by itself and it was not part of the resurrection event. As I'll say in just a moment, the reason that there's an image on the Shroud of Turin is a huge light burst that I attribute uh, to the resurrection event. A very powerful light burst, which lasted for one forty billionth of a second at six to eight billion watts of light energy. Can you imagine like a half a million searchlights worth of light energy pouring out of a body? Most dead bodies do not do this. This is an extraordinary occurrence. But the face cloth was not part of uh, Jesus' resurrection. It's already taken from the body, from the face. And what did they do? They deposited the face cloth in a place by itself. So the face cloth had blood, but no image. Now, the face cloth of Oviedo, we know the provenance of that. We know, right, uh, that, the, that the face cloth of Oviedo was definitely in Jerusalem because we have a proliferation of pollen fossils, once again, that come from that region, four of which are indigenous to northern Judea and Jerusalem. So it definitely was there. These are the most prolific number of uh, pollen fossils coming from this area. So we know the face cloth was in Jerusalem. But then starting in 616 AD, we have a definite provenance, that is to say, a historical record that tells us exactly where that cloth went. Because that when the cloth was received in 616 uh, by the, the bishop at that time in Edessa, Turkey, he makes a record of it in 616. It's handed on to another bishop after that. Then, because they're afraid of, you know, the Moors that are coming up, right, the, uh, the, uh, the um, you know, the uh, uh, Mohammedan uh, uh, clans that are, are making progress into Turkey, they transported quickly the face cloth. We know this from historical record. They transport it up to Spain and give it to St. Isidore of Seville 
What does he do with it? And by the way, he's keeping the historical record, the provenance as well. He takes it and puts it into a little kind of silver casket um, itself. He puts it into the Cathedral of Oviedo. And that was about 700 AD, and that's where it has stayed to this day. Now, we've got that record all the way there. Now, here's the rub. If you look at those two face, the face cloth of Oviedo, and you take a look at the Shroud of Turin, remember the face cloth of Oviedo has no image on it like the Shroud does. And then you do Vonger's uh, digital overlay analysis onto it, and you compare those blood stains that are on the two cloths. All right, you guys, there's 120 points of congruence of those blood stains. Now, this is really bizarro because, first of all, these blood stains from Jesus' crucifixion, right, they're being crowned with thorns. They're big thorns with highly irregular wounds that are, um, apart, you know, resulting from, it's not just the scraping of the soul, it's the, uh, of, the, of, the, uh, of the, uh, the scalp. It is literally the penetration of the skull. And it goes all the way down to the nape of the neck. And of course, when Jesus, you know, when his head went back, it was pushing all those thorns into his neck. Now, if you look at the front part of both cloths, you'll see 70 points of congruence. And if you look at the back part of the head and the nape of the neck, you see 50 points of congruence. Well, do you know the odds? of actually getting all of those points of congruence on, uh, you know, a hundred blood stains very irregularly produced by pure chance without those two cloths touching the very same face and head of the very same crucified man. Do you know the odds again? It's astronomically high against that occurring by pure chance. No, ladies and gentlemen, those two cloths touch the face and head of the same crucified man. And as we'll see in a moment, crucified in precisely the unique way that Jesus was crucified. Well, what does that mean? The Shroud of Turin sure did not come. You can believe this. It didn't come from 1300. It had to come from at least 616 AD or earlier. If the two claws touch the same face, and we've got a provenance that's dated record right back to 616 AD for the face cloth of Oviedo, then the shroud is not one centilly um, uh, uh, younger than 616 AD. For all intents and purposes, of course, it goes back before 616 AD, but the shroud didn't come after that if it touched the same face, and it did. So that really gives overwhelming evidence. We've got a cloth here. We've got a cloth that seems to come from the exact period that Jesus was crucified. It has coins on it that seem to come precisely from Jerusalem uh, and uh, from a special minting of those coins in Jerusalem in uh, 29 AD. 
and on top of that, filled with pollen fossils that are indigenous, I mean, that, are, um, that have uh, uh, pollen fossils that are indigenous to the northern Judea and Jerusalem regions, both clods have them. What we've got here is really something that uh, comes from the age of Jesus, and um, as we'll see in a moment, well, is it Jesus? Let's just take a look at the bloodstains. First of all, there's all kinds of people who come out and say, ah, this is fakery, this is really paint, this is really dye, this, is, these aren't, this isn't real blood. Ladies and gentlemen, every one of those bloodstains, hundreds of them, guess what? They have hemoglobin in them. Hemoglobin, hmm. I didn't know paint and dye had hemoglobin. It has bilirubin in them. I didn't know that, uh, that paint and dye had bilirubin. Oh, an AB positive blood type. I didn't know that paint and dye had AB positive blood type and a partial DNA profile. And even on top of that, there's actually uh, enzymes that are synthesized when people are undergoing a polytrauma. In other words, uh, ferritin and, and creatinine are synthesized in the blood of this man, and the only time you get a synthesis of ferritin and creatinine uh, in the blood is when? Pardon? Yeah, it's when a person is undergoing polytrauma, when they're being tortured. So here's kind of a, a do you have the PLOS one uh, reading there, great one? Yeah, and here's what, uh, what they uh, conclude about this. Just uh, take a look at this study. Conclusion of the PLOS One study. This is not a situation typical of the blood serum of a healthy human organism. High levels of creatinine in the blood are observed in the case of strong trauma. There is wide recent literature reporting on interaction between creatinine and ferritin in fatal accidents or as a consequence of the rhabdomyolysis due to torture. This result cannot be impressed on the Turin Shroud by using ancient dye pigments as they have bigger sizes and tend to aggregate. And it is highly unlikely that the eventual ancient artist would have painted a fake by using the hematic serum of someone after a heavy polytrauma. <laughs> In other words, wow, even that medieval forger figured out that he could, he, he could get the creatinine and ferritin and synthesized together and that would really fake out people in the 21st century? I don't think so. I think we've got here genuine blood of a tortured and crucified man. That's an interesting set of facts. And there's hundreds of these blood stains, especially because of all the whippings, right? You know, there, that uh, Jesus, there's 120 um, uh, uh, whipping uh, blood stains because, of course, he was whipped uh, uh, 40 times with a um, uh, what's called a Roman flagrum. Well, let's just take a look then. Is this Jesus? Well, certainly it's blood. Is it Jesus's blood? We can examine more closely. The original analysis of this was done by Dr. Pierre Barbet a long time ago, but now, of course, uh, Frederick Zugabi and all kinds of other people have done subsequent uh, analyses of it. I'm just going to give you a summary of why is this the crucifixion and passion of Jesus. Number one, the man in the shroud was crowned with thorns. 
big thorns. And they also, as I said, penetrated not just the scalp, but the skull. And not only that, but the crown was a Roman crown, right? A medieval crown goes around the head, but the Roman crown goes around the head and on top of the head. The crown here is on top of the head as well as around the head. So it's a Roman crown. But we don't have any case in the whole history of humankind where a crucified man was actually crowned with thorns. Only one. And that is Jesus Christ as described in the Gospels. But this man was definitely crowned with thorns and he was crowned with a Roman crown. And you can tell absolutely from the blood evidence. Number two, the man in the crown and the man in the shroud was his, he was, uh, you can see a lance mark, a penetration of the side that goes up between the fourth and the fifth rib at a 45 degree angle. What kind of a wound actually occurred? You can see that it's a triangular spearhead that is used. It's going up at a 45 degree angle into uh, the, the, uh, uh, the cavity, uh, you know, uh, in which the heart is contained in the pericardial cavity uh, during times of stress. Like, the, you know, when a person's being crucified, right, they're trying to breathe, and so they, they got to, you know, lift up, and they're gasping. It's filling with uh, pericardial fluid, and so you've got clear fluid in there, and you also have, of course, the heart uh, right next to it. The, the, the spear goes, it thrusts up through the ribs, the 45-degree angle punctures the pericardial sac, which releases a bunch of clear fluid that looks like water, and then punctures the heart at the same angle, and out comes blood. Now, you take a look at that for just one second, and you think, what does that remind you of? The Gospel of John, once again. They thrust a spear in his side, and out came blood, and what he perceived to be water. Clear fluid came right out. And of course, what does John say immediately after that passage? He, you know, he thinks people are gonna go, no, not water. And he goes, this was seen by a witness, and he knows that his witness is true. So he's saying, you know, that's what happened. This is not a symbol of baptism or something. This is what happened. That's what exactly happened. That when the spear went through that man's side on the shroud, it would have given a, an outburst of, of blood and water. That's the next thing. And by the way, a legionary spear, so unusual. They didn't have those in medieval days. How did the medieval forger know to get the right legionary spear from the Roman days without having examined uh, an archaeological site that would have had them? Third thing that's kind of interesting. This man is whipped, well, between 39 to 40 times. And what kind of whip was used on this man? That's an extraordinary, it's like the maximum of whippings you can give. So he's obviously 
uh, considered to be a major criminal, right? Uh, he kind of gets the maximum sentence. And this whip is a Roman flagrum. As I said, it has three uh, thongs on it, and each thong has bone chips or metal sp uh, spikes on the end of it. And the spikes go around the body, right? So as the, there's a soldier to his uh, left and a soldier to his right, and they are whipping him alternatively. So you see the stripes going one way, then another way, going straight from the shoulders all the way down, uh, to the buttocks, all the way down to the uh, thighs and calves and to the feet. So they're kind of whipping him everywhere you can whip him. And these bone chips and spikes are coming right around his side and are just embedding themselves in the side of the man um, uh, that's uh, uh, being whipped and tormented. The blood that would have gushed forth would have been immense. And that probably explains why Jesus needed help uh, to carry the cross, or at least a cross beam. Because he, no, no way, if you lose that much blood, there's just no way you can uh, carry the cross. But that, of course, that we're just, you know, again, a Roman whip. Medievals didn't use three-thonged Roman whips with boat chips. How did the medieval forger know this? Of course, it's the same idea. He didn't know it because it wasn't done by a medieval forger. The point is very clear. This is a Roman whip. He got the maximum sentence. It's there emblazoned on the cloth. But it goes further. There's a big, huge lump on the shoulder of the man who is obviously, we think that it came from carrying the cross. You compare one side of the shoulder with the other side of the shoulder, one has a very big swelling and lump that is there. Obviously, we think it came from carrying the cross. Finally, uh, the man was nailed to the cross, but it was done in exactly the way that the Romans did it. As medieval um, uh, people had portrayed it, they thought that the, the nails went straight through the palm of the hand. So if you look at a crucifix uh, here in the church or something, you'll see right that uh, they have the nails right here like this. But that's the Romans didn't do that. They actually pushed it down at a 36 degree angle and they pushed it from the middle of the palm all right, but they pushed it down so it come out right here at that V right in the wrist, so that it comes down and now the wrist bone will hold the, the nail, uh, you know, as, into not just the wood of the cross, but it'll hold the hand, right? If you just have flesh, it just tear away. But if you can get it through the bone, it will stay right up there on the cross. And that's exactly how it was done. And that was what was done to this man. So this was not done by some medieval forger who had no idea what was going on. This was done by professionals who knew exactly how to nail his hands to the cross, and that would be the Roman soldiers. And the feet, right, one foot was put on top of the other. A single nail was used to push it right through. Both, again, you have the same kind of configuration of the bones um, that, you know, are when the, uh, the, the leg is connecting to, to, the, uh, to the ankle there, you can see that same configuration. They have put the two feet together so it goes out the heel of one foot and goes into um, the, uh, the, the, uh, 
uh, connection point of the other uh, foot which goes right into the wood of the cross. So Zugabi figured this out uh, along with it and that conforms exactly with the crucifixion of Jesus and with the Roman crucifixion uh, when nailing was used. Sometimes the body was tied to the cross, sometimes nailing was used. What is What can we make out of this? Only Jesus, as far as we know, the only crucifixion that ever happened in history with the crown of thorns was that of Jesus. And in the case of the man in the shroud, it was with a Roman crown. The only case we know of in history where a man uh, was, uh, who was crucified was actually speared uh, in the side um, uh, you know, to hasten his death, right? Romans didn't want to hasten anybody's death. They wanted the excruciating pain to last as long as possible. But they were up against the, the, um, uh, the coming of uh, the Sabbath. And so, of course, they didn't want um, uh, to uh, have the bodies on the cross uh, during the Sabbath. So they were hurrying to get it up. And, of course, Jesus was already dead. So, boom, instead of breaking the knees, this man doesn't have broken knees in the shroud. Right? And so we can, and this legionary spear, uh, a Roman legionary spear was used etc. The 40 whippings, uh, 20 in each direction with the Roman flagrum, 120 uh, strokes that are there on the back, etc. All of these things mark what is genuinely and uniquely a crucifixion of Jesus. I mean, at this point, I have to tell you, I'm already convinced. I'm convinced because of the dating. I'm convinced because of the coins on the man's eyes. I'm convinced because of the pollen fossils. I'm convinced because of the blood evidence. And I'm convinced because of the creatinine and ferritin mixture showing that the man endured a polytrauma. I'm convinced because of the unique crucifixion of Jesus, which is emblazoned all over this shroud that resembles the Gospels and validates the Gospels in their absolute accuracy as to what happened to Jesus uh, during his crucifixion. And now we get to the pièce de résistance. Now we get to the really interesting stuff. The image. Because the image defies everything. The image on the cross, as I, uh, on, the, on the shroud, as I said, is a perfect three-dimensional. So it's layered MRI-like three-dimensional imaging that's there. You can actually take a, you, you can look at any shroud book and you can see that uh, from the three-dimensional layered imaging, you can see that, um, uh, that there is depth um, uh, on the face and so forth and so on. And from this, you can actually produce a 3D uh, face portrait of Jesus that has been done many, many times by uh, computer and by, um, uh, you know, using um, uh, certain new forms of, uh, of photocopying that uh, will enable you to get 3D uh, imaging. Now, the point that's really interesting is it's on a non-photographically sensitive cloth. But that's not the only bizarre part about this image. The bizarre part, too, is it's right on the very uppermost surface of the fibrils on the shroud. So what, it, what you see is there's no penetration of the image into the middle of the fibers or into the middle of the cloth. Now this is weird unless it's light that's producing the image. Let's just see why. Remember, the image is floating right up there in the uppermost fibrils uh, on the surface of the cloth. 
so it never penetrated in the middle of the, the threads or into the middle of, of the cloth. Well, if you had liquid, so if this was some, if, let's suppose there was a forger and he used dye or he used paint, what would happen? Immediately, the paint or the dye would penetrate right through into the middle of the fibers and into the middle of the cloth. No question about it. And it would have penetrated also into uh, you know, the adjacent um, parts of the fibrils, which would mean that your, your image would not be precise at all. The image on the shroud is exceedingly precise like a photograph. There's no leakage, as it were, uh, between uh, uh, you know, adjacent um, squares on the, on the, uh, of cloth on the shroud. So when you look at that, you say, well, certainly liquid was not used to produce the image. Okay, what's the second option? That you, five minutes? Okay, I'm, I gotta just move through this. But uh, this is fascinating stuff. I might just take two minutes more. But the main thing is, uh, the second thing you'll notice, it could not be vapors. Vapors would also penetrate uh, into the cloth and it would also not, um, uh, you, you know, it would also penetrate all into the adjacent parts of the cloth. So that's, it won't give you a pr uh, pristine and precise image. So vapors is out of the question. We have a test, right, called fluorescing that you can use ultraviolet radiation, you can use that, um, and, and you can see whether a, an effect called fluorescing occurs, and that will tell you whether a scorch or something akin to a scorch produced the image. No fluorescing takes place except only in the controversial spots, right, where the shroud was, the compromised spots where the shroud was burned during the fire of Chambéry. So what's left? What does a physicist have left? A physicist has one thing left, light. That's it. There can't, heat didn't do it, chemical didn't do it, dyes, rubs, vapors didn't do it. What could have done it? Light could have done it. But wait a minute. The shroud is a non-photographically sensitive linen cloth. Well, wait a minute. What does that mean? Well, it certainly wasn't a piece of photographic paper. You're gonna have to have a lot of light to make that image on a non-photographically sensitive cloth. How much light? Well, I'm gonna skip, I won't tell you the whole story. Six to eight billion with a B, billion watts of directional ultraviolet, vac vacuum ultraviolet radiation Directional vacuum ultraviolet radiation is small, you know, high-frequency light, small wavelength, high-frequency light. And that's, you have to have that because you need incredibly short bursts of it. Well, why do you need a super short burst of this light? <laughs> Let me tell you the reason in one quick nutshell. If you get, you know how hot 8 billion watts of light energy is? It's like super, super hot. Just imagine how hot five, just, just think a half million searchlights worth the light energy. Just think for just a second of how hot that would be standing in front of a half. That's like being, you know, just about 10,000 miles away from the sun. It'd make you crispy critters. There'd be nothing left of that cloth. In one microsecond, there wouldn't even be carbon vapors left over from that cloth. It would be reduced to carbon atoms, period. That's it. Now, the main thing is 
the cloth is still intact and unharmed. That means that burst of light has to be for one forty billionth of a second. Well, what would it take to produce that? 14,000 ARF eczemer lasers. That's how much it would take. By the way, that's the only way we can get that, that frequency of light, that micro, that very, uh, you know, uh, high frequency, but, but uh, uh, you know, uh, small wavelength light. We have to get it from a laboratory. And what the interesting thing is, is that's 14,000 ARF eczema lasers. That's more than all the ultraviolet uh, capacity we have in every laboratory in the world today. Now you tell me, how did a dead body produce 14,000 ARF eczema lasers worth of light energy, six to eight billion watts of light energy for one forty billionth of a second. As I said before, dead bodies don't ordinarily do this. This is really physically impossible to explain. However, Paulo de Lazaro in 2010 actually replicated it by his team. He showed that with this kind of radiation produced in the laboratory, you could produce an image just like the Shroud of Turin with the same sepia color on the same, on the same kind of cloth with the same spectral reflectance as the Shroud of Turin. Here's what uh, de Lazaro and his team said. The ultraviolet light necessary to form the image exceeds the maximum power released by all ultraviolet light sources available today. It would require pulses having durations shorter than one forty billionth of a second and intensities on the order of several billion watts. Okay, so one last factor and I'll wind it up. Here it is. You know when I said there was depth, uh, you know, um, uh, layering that you could see on the image in the shroud? Well, it's also on the inside of the body, not just the outside. Yes, you can see the bones inside the hands, for example, and the flesh surrounding the bones in the hand. But how in the world do you get depth so you can tell the depth difference between the flesh on top of the bones and the actual bones themselves. The only way this can be done is if that cloth penetrates the body for at least three sixteenths of an inch. Okay, got it. So to make a long story short, this is important. The body turns mechanically transparent. The body turned spiritual. Remember the spiritual body and all the scriptures? It's exactly what the Christian said. It's exactly what St. Paul says. This body turned spiritual and gave rise to a huge burst of light energy that would be like being 10,000 miles away from the sun. It was so bright it would have vaporized everything if it hadn't been for one forty billionth of a second. It's almost as if God 2,000 years ago, just to get us in the 20th and 21st century, just provided all of this evidence, which we could now test for, and then just said with a wink of the eye, gotcha. That is the Shroud of Turin, which I believe could only be produced supernaturally. That's the Shroud, the burial Shroud of Jesus Christ. Thank you.